And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stran and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest, Premier Mohammedon, the Cood Street Podcast! And welcome, Premier, and congratulations on The Butcher in the Forest, which is coming out within days of our talking. Is that correct? That is correct. February 27th, as far as I know. And thank you so, so much for the invite. I'm excited to be here. It is just we've a huge been... pleasure. I mean, we, we got to talk to you a year ago, I think. But, um, you know, it's wonderful to get to, ca- you know, to catch up again. It seems just looking from what we can see out in the world, you've been a busy, busy, busy person. How has the last year been for you since we spoke last? Uh, busy is the word for it. It very much is the word for it. So um, for part of the year, I had my full-time job and plus the full-time job of writing and editing fiction and the full-time job of promoting stuff and answering emails. Um, And uh, I actually quit that position in March and proceeded to feel very, very sorry for myself and refer to myself as unemployed for some period of time as as friends grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me gently (laughs) back and forth and said, you are not unemployed. You are a full-time author now, um, which was upsetting because you know I wasn't really making any money. But uh, <laughs> this year, after after toughing it out for part of last year, um, I am the new writer in residence at the City of Edmonton Public Library. So that's very very exciting. Congratulations! Thank you. And there are all kinds of responsibilities that come with this, other than just showing up to give readings, because. Most American public libraries, I don't know of any that have writers in residence. They might, but they don't have budgets to do that sort of thing. Explain a little bit about what your duties are as a writer in residence. It's not a university. It's a library. It is a library. Uh, And the first question I mostly had to deal with from friends was, so does this mean you are living at the library? It does not. They truly do not want anyone living at the library. So we had to clear (laughs) that up. Um, no, I'm, I'm spending, supposed to, I'm supposed to be spending about half my time working on my own projects. So this really is the dream. I'm getting paid a small salary to write. Um, and the rest of the time it's library duties. So that's one-on-one meetings with writers to review their manuscripts or provide moral support or resources or just chat about publishing or craft or specific issues um, or, or connect them to locals, uh, you know, other writers and also library programming. So um, craft talks and, and ask an agent, ask an editor. And uh, next month, for instance, I have thrown an author friend under the bus, my friend Matt Wallace, who will be teaching um, how to write the middle grade novel. And then I've got things lined up for crime and mystery writing, for self-publishing, um, I'm trying to do some weekend, you know, virtual focused writing time as well. Just trying to um, build up and, and strengthen the Edmonton writing community is as part of my duties. It sounds like a pretty lively writing community there. I mean, it's 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 not a huge city, um, but uh, there, there's there, who do I know from Evans? Who do I know from Edmonton? Wasn't probably Candace Jane. Dorsey. Candace Dorsey. Candace Dorsey. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can get her to come in and talk uh, short fiction, actually, specifically. So uh, possibly, you know, excessively overqualified. But um, as we say, needs must when throwing friends under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're we're a city of just over a million people. So it's not, you know, a giant city, but we've got a fairly small but intense writing community, which is really nice. Well, you're not throwing so, her under the bus. Just a piece of quick trivia, because Candace, because you were a finalist for the Crawford Award some time ago. Yeah. Uh, and Candace was one of the judges, and we had a conversation. She she was very much uh, in in favor of you, but she said this is not this is not Edmonton uh, bias on my part. It was really good. So it's, it's not as though that many science fiction and fantasy <laughs> Thank writers. You, Candace. From, so there. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, you start you started publishing about uh, back in 2015 and the first novel in 2020. So it's been a fairly, by some standards, a fairly compact period of time. But you're saying that there's this moment where you've, you're no longer at your day job last year, and people are saying to you, "You are now a full time writer, and you should sort of understand that you're a professional writer." Except that, first of all, was your journey to that point anything like you thought it might have been when you started? And had you been hoping to make more money? <laughs> well, what a question. Uh, 
I I don't think that I came into it uh, with expectations of ever being a full-time writer. The goal when I started was always to keep it as my 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 precious beloved little hobby that would keep me sane outside of my job. And I managed that for years. I think what really changed was when I got kind of onto the long form treadmill. Like I think anybody can keep short fiction as a hobby forever. Um, but when you step onto the publishing treadmill of novels, uh, because my first book deal was actually a two book deal. So I had to write the first book in my life on the first deadline of my life. I'd never had a deadline before <laughs> that, that poor innocent child of, of 2018. Um, you know, I'm not the one with my finger on the speed button. Publishing is what kind of decides how fast the belt is moving. And um, so I found that I was trying to keep up with writing and editing and answering emails and then starting to do the kind of promo things that are expected with books, podcasts and interviews and being on panels and attending conferences. So that on top of the writing, on top of the full time job was becoming really unsustainable. And of course, I knew that if I quit the job, then I wouldn't be able to write because I'd be too stressed out about starving to death. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the main thing is I, I read um, Martin Amos's book, The Information, when I was like 17. And of course, it's very, very funny. It's very, it's very nasty and funny. Um, very, very politically incorrect and mean. And I think I'm allowed to say all sorts of things about him now that he's dead. God bless. But that kind of pulled the scales from my eyes about publishing forever because, you know, you don't get to pick whether you are the impoverished genius or the rich idiot. You know, you don't get to pick whether you're writing the bad book that everybody loves or the very, very good book that nobody buys. The public is what picks that. So when I, you know, finished reading that book at 17, I was like, well, good thing no one's ever going to read anything I write. And good thing I'm never going to get into publishing because this is just, you know, it's terrible. Uh, and yeah, last year, I think I made more money off my writing than I have ever made in my entire life. And it came to about $11,000 Canadian. So if I had been relying on my my writing income, uh, yeah, I would have had to move back into my parents' basement, which I think would have horrified everybody <laughs> <laughs> well but you mentioned yeah. the Martin Amos novel I'm curious about what you read as a kid what what started you in this in this direction or in, you're not you're not even writing in just one direction but all of them have to do with what Clute calls fantastic as far as I can tell so something must have made you fall in love with this kind of literature yeah um I I have always been one of those kids that just wrote, you know, read whatever, and then wrote whatever came to mind. Uh, I, I did start reading Martin Amos when I was about 11, which is, which is a little early. That's Nobody weird. should be reading money when they're 11 years old. Um, really, that one in particular, no one should be reading that. But, um, you know, I grew up on kind of the, um, the older stuff, the pulp. And the reason for that was because we went to a lot of the library used book sales. And what they would get rid of a lot of the time were these omnibuses, omnibi, omni, you know, more omnibuses? than one omnibus. Mm -hmm. Omnibuses, I think. Omnibuses. So my earliest books, I still have them in the basement, uh, were an Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, big, you know, a big clunk of that, yeah. and then a big collected Edgar Allan Poe, and then a big collected uh, Robert E. Howard. So Collect I grew up reading these wonderful, goofy pulp stories of sci-fi and fantasy and adventure with these very dramatic charcoal illustrations. And, you know... As I got a little bit older, it was more like Monica Furlong and Monica Hughes and, uh, you know, The Dark is Rising, Susan Cooper and a lot of um, Lloyd Alexander. I loved The Chronicles of Pridane. I, I don't know who didn't. And a lot of Diane Duane. One of the earliest books I can remember picking up is, understandably, you know, pulling it off the shelf. So you want to be a wizard. Uh -huh. I do want to be a wizard. <laughs> what a handy book for an eight-year-old to find on the shelf. <laughs> And I always, um, I liked kind of the literature of the imagination. Um, I liked, you know, I've, I've always loved, I guess, what we would call litvic or contemporary realism for other reasons, but I'm looking for something else from sci-fi and fantasy. And I hope that's what I'm writing to is genres touching each other, genres being inappropriate with each other. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I was going to say, in, in a way, that brings us to the Butcher of the Forest, because 
one of the things that strikes me about it is that there's a lot of there are a lot of familiar things in it in terms of folklore and and there's a haunted forest in it and there's there are there's zombie moose am i right there's zombie mm-hmm. animals anyway it's um, it's a forest with issues it's got it's, 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 issues. A, it's a forest that has issues but at the same time which is which is a long tradition in western and and for that matter not only in western literature but at the same time you've got a protagonist who's like 40ish like middle aged it's not your youthful uh, quest heroine sort of thing <laughs> it's it's somebody who has had bad experiences who has guilt who in other words you've got a mainstream literary character going into a haunted forest so it looks to me like you're combining your reading habits already in this one novella maybe yeah um and i i actually i like the way that's framed too because uh it it occurred to me as i was starting it kind of what you know it would be fun to have that youthful energetic protagonist who's leaping into the call to adventure but because this is so much a book about power and 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 hunger for power and um, sort of the historical ghosts of, of colonization and the resistance to colonization and that sort of division between in-group and out-group, I did want to set up somebody who had knowledge, maybe capital K knowledge, somebody who knows things, somebody who is aware that the out-group that has invaded their valley again um, has made a terrible mistake and she has knowledge that they can't possibly have, but she also is the only one who can do what's being asked. And it occurred to me that somebody in her 20s, your average Disney princess who talks to the birds and doesn't get sassed back by the crow who's like, I haven't seen any children, um, you know, what wouldn't feel right. You know, she's being coerced. I wanted to show someone who can who can be coerced. Yeah, it's very much, uh, you know, Varys is very much a Francis McDormand kind of character. Okay. Yes. You, you, you yeah. know, she, She's practical. She's smart. She's having to deal with a situation she does not want to deal with and is, tries not to deal with, tries to bargain about dealing with, and is forced to deal with at some considerable cost to herself while showing her own innate decency as she goes, which I think is really important. To like, I think that's the core of the piece. There's all of this imaginative stuff, which is engaging. The forest that she goes into is fantastic. The characters she's engaged with and everything else. And there's some genuinely scary parts to it. But that's the core of the story. Where did you actually find the beginning piece of it? What was the thing that said, this is the story that I want to do? That, that was pretty early on. And by the way, thank you for the kind words. I think you're kind of biased, though. I think there's a possibility of bias here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is this where we but, have to uh, state the conflict of interest? I don't think the interest is conflicting. I'm pleased. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a... Uh, it all came together really fast. I ended up writing this in about three weekends because at the time I was only mm. writing on weekends uh, in about five writing sessions. So honestly, it took something like, I don't know, 20 hours to write or something like that. But I think I mentioned it, the initial imagery came from a dream. And I'm not a big proponent of trying to take a dream and basing a piece of literature on it because you have to work with the dream logic and then you have to unkink everything because nothing in a dream makes sense. But all I remembered was a single image um, of the throne room and, and the skulls on the wall being lit by firelight. And then someone behind me creepily good job, creepy voice, saying, should the children be responsible for the sins of the father? And then I woke up and I made a note on my phone and I was like, bleh, you know, this, you know, maybe this will make a good little piece of flash or something. And then you sit down with it though. And you're like, what children, what father, where are we? Um, So I kind of, yeah, backwards engineered from that. So there's a stone wall, probably it's a castle. This doesn't seem modern. Mm -hmm. If there's a throne room, then we're working under a monarchy or or something similar. So I extrapolated that. And then if this was a nice, good ruler, surely they would have taken down the skulls. (laughs) But instead, they've left them up there and are maybe adding to them. And then the fire, I was like, "This uh, this is dark. This isn't a Disney movie, unless it's maybe The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was an outlier for them. But, um, you know, this is this is a fairy tale. And that's, I think, when I got the idea for the novella, because 
when you are writing something at that length, you know, as you know, um, you have to get the reader to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Like this is less oh, than yeah. 40,000 words. So I needed readers to bring with them the mental image of the Grimm's fairy tales um, for them to build most of the world themselves and then just take that and kind of step into the story. So I was thinking, okay, so there's a ruler. Maybe he's evil. Maybe this is the person, the father. Um, and then maybe his children are in peril or something. Maybe they've been taken from him. Maybe they're estranged from him. No, let's go younger. Let's put the children in danger. Okay, how can I get the children out of danger? And then I just kind of built the plot sideways out from that forward and backward. Just to orient the reader, to the listeners a little bit, Varus is somebody who has previously rescued somebody from uh, the... Eben, I forgot the name of the forest. Ebenwood? Eben, Eben... Uh, the Elmaber. Okay, yeah. Why am I th- I was thinking of Ebenrude Outboard Motors. I don't know. Whatever. They'll never. <laughs> uh, and she has, because she has successfully brought someone out, she is coerced, blackmailed, threatened into bringing out the children of, of, the, of, of this king that you mentioned. And what fascinates me is that some of the elements, and the king is referred to, he's not even a king, he's referred to as tyrant. He's referred to as capital T Tyrant, which is as archetypal as you can get in fairy mm-hmm. tale terms. He doesn't even have a name. Yeah. He doesn't even have a name. He's just Tyrant. So you've got this. So we've got Francis McDormand or whatever. I didn't <laughs> think of her that way. But you have a character with a past, a character with guilt, a character with issues of loyalty, a character's issues of responsibility. In other words, a real human character facing up against an archetype. And I think that's fascinating for some reason because. Oh, thank you. You've got a fairy tale versus a realistic uh, psychological tale in the same yeah, story. Initially, when I was jokingly pitching it on, on Twitter, which I hope is what caught Jonathan's attention, was, um, you know, I referred to it as Escape from L.A. meets Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. And it, it kind of is actually Escape from L.A. You know, there's a coerced expert because when you're good at something, eventually people will stop asking to pay money for you to do it. If you say no, they'll just start threatening you to do it. Um, because no one else will do it. Every, it's also the story yeah. of every gunslinger in the history of Western. Yeah, you know, so the Shane. almost almost the anti-hero. Like, right. I'm doing what has to be done. I'm doing the next thing. I'm not doing the right thing. And all the rules that she goes into the forest with, A, the forest tries to make her break them, and B, she knows she has to break them, and she breaks them out of desperation and panic, not because she thinks that's the wise thing to do. So it's the forest itself is almost a character. It it is an archetype. The forest is a trickster containing tricksters. I, would, I was about to say people. There aren't really people living there. There are certainly inhabitants. <laughs> right. Well, there's a fox that looks that does what foxes do in fairy tales largely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a fox and a man and He's, he's sort of a fox and a man at the same time. Um, that's been getting kind of a, a weirdly positive response from a lot of early readers that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. <laughs> we can pursue that or not, according to your whim. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned the forest has rules, and that fascinated me because you do have a, you do have a science background. Uh, and you do have uh, certainly familiarity with science fiction. And I assume some familiarity with gaming as well, because it, well, it just looked to me like some of these rules in the forest are as arbitrary as the rules of, of some video games are, or as, and, and, and they're as rigorous as scientific rules. In other words, this is not a random forest. This is a forest that's, that has thought itself out in some way. <laughs> Yeah, I think, and what I really liked about this, I was talking about this earlier too, is um, I'm I'm not a big fan of like the, like the really what did what did that host use? He said Sandersonian. So I've never actually read any Brandon Sanderson, but um, mm-hmm. the sort of like very crunchy, mathy, sciency, uh, you know, roll yeah. d six to to cast a spell or whatever magic. I'm not, I'm not the hugest fan of that. And it, to me, would have felt out of place in a fairy tale book. So um, my, my kind of goal was to be like, well, there's certainly magic. It's the hand waviest type of magic that there is. Um, The forest hand waves it too. So the rules that Varys thinks she knows are the rules that the forest has given her, which it's probably lying about. 
using to manipulate people. Um, I can't see this forest having a hard and fast rule about anything except that I do what I want, which I guess is also a rule. And I like the idea that the magic in this book is something that the forest and the inhabitants and Varys um, and, you know, maybe one or two other humans, mortals, whatever, can mm -hmm. access but not use, if that makes any sense. Um, that they are not yeah. in any way experts, that they that some of them are more in tune or aligned with how to grab it, but no one really has, you know, a pocket calculator. No, everybody has a, everybody has spells. a piece of the information. She has, so, yeah. so to some extent, the, I mean, there, there's, there's one rule, for example, or she, she believes there's one rule. You don't mm -hmm. bargain with anybody in the forest, mm -hmm. but then she goes ahead and bargains with people anyway. Yeah. Uh, she has to. Yeah. She has to. So, 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 yeah. so the forest itself is an unreliable narrator. It's an unreliable yeah. forest. That's the forest great. itself is a trickster. Yeah. And yeah. that's why you don't know when you've stepped into it. Except, well, and this isn't a spoiler either, but she looks around and she's, you know, she kind of does the princess, the Disney princess thing. She's like, are these birds going to talk to me? <laughs> are, are they going to help me? And is it going to be in a cute and musical way? And the birds immediately are like, no. So, <laughs> no, this is a different movie. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Because it really is a thing about all of the external powers that act on the story are whimsical, dark and deadly, and unpredictable. These are, in, sense, in a sense, almost a little bit like a colonial power doing what it does for its own reasons without, without ever explaining them. This is a situation where you're getting what you're given and you have to, you have to guess what's going to work because otherwise you don't get to basically get out alive. Mm -hmm. And I, I did want to lean into that as well. Uh, and, you know, people will probably see this in my other books coming out this year, but I guess colonialism and anti-colonialism and who gets to call the shots and what looks like character agency when someone else is limiting your choices mm -hmm. um, is something that I'm just I'm, I'm extremely uh, focused on, I guess, in in my own head. So there's no way it's not coming out in my writing. I keep thinking of kind of that, that David Mamet quote where he talks about the thing that writers keep coming back to is the thing that wounded them. It's like a bruise. So you touch it now and then to see if it still hurts. And he said, you know, maybe for somebody that's like racism, they can't figure out why racism is still a thing or why they keep experiencing it. So they keep coming back to that in their writing. And in mine, I keep coming back to power and why people want it and how they get it and how loath they are to release it even when the other options are things like love or or money or freedom or positive regard or anything like that people would rather have power some people than all of those things and i'm like i would like to stop thinking about this now and instead i'm just writing thousands and thousands of words of fiction about it <laughs> Well, that, that kind of brings us to the to the non archetypal aspect of a of a figure like the tyrant, because on the one hand he's just the he's he's the bad king, and on the but but there's a real genocidal horror to him as well. In other words, this is not somebody who's just uh, it's it's not the evil queen, it's not Maleficent, it's not the bad king in in a grim fairy tale. It's an actual nightmare character uh, who actually kills people and tortures people. And, and, and to that extent, it becomes a horror story. Um, which is, I, I guess one of the things that fascinated me is that there are so many genres sort of feeding into this one story. Yeah. Um, and it's funny too, because even like starting, I think like last year, I started to see it on uh, most anticipated lists, which was super, super exciting. I love when that happens, but they were all like most anticipated horror. And I was like, I didn't write a horror story and I had friends emailing me like, no, you, yeah, you very clearly wrote something between a, a folk horror story and a cosmic horror story. And at the end, we don't even know who the butcher of the forest is. There are several candidates. Mm -hmm. Like it's not the tyrant necessarily. There's no. like... <laughs> no, the and also don't trust, don't trust unicorns. Unicorns are bad. Exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. But um, yeah, I didn't, as often happens, as happened with my with my debut trilogy, I didn't think I wrote a horror story. I wanted the characters to be scared. Um, uh, and then later people put it on horror lists, which is uh, lovely. But I, I thought I just wrote a straight up fantasy. I thought I thought at best we would call it maybe a dark fantasy. Were you familiar with other 
magical forest stories like Robert Hulstock's Mythical Wood or, or even going back to the Victorians or, or, or for that matter, the magical forest in, in Lord of the Rings. In other words, this is, this is a long-standing fantasy tradition. This is a solid fantasy tradition, yeah. I've never read Mythica Wood. Um, several people suggested I should, and uh, I noticed a lot of people used it kind of as a comp, so I'm like, I should really read that in case people ask me about it. Um, you know, but I was also thinking, yeah, like the forest in um, John Crowley's Little Big. Right, yeah, um, exactly. The, the forest in, uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings. Um, even even the forest outside of Gorman Gas Castle, you know, Mervyn Peak. That's yeah, because, you know, it's it's the bigger world that the people of the village are, are not necessarily used to dealing with. It's something that's just there. It, it itself is almost a cosmic horror. It's unknowable. It's ancient. It's very, very powerful. Whatever it chooses to do to you um, doesn't necessarily feel personal. It's just doing it because it does it and because you are such a small, insignificant life form compared to it. And of course, the Wildwood scene in um, The Wind in the Willows, where right. Raggy and Mole are lost in the woods and it's snowing and they're terrified and there's faces in the trees and they think they hear voices and then they stumble over Badger's boot scraper. Um, not that I've read that book several billion times, but <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the vibe I was going for. Like this forest is not a normal forest. It can't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying at the beginning that you thought that the butcher of the forest was going to be a piece of flash, and then you begin to, to write it and flesh it out into something. It's, it's clear that, from the way you describe that process, that you don't necessarily have a clear idea at the very beginning of exactly how long these, these things are going to be. It's an act, like an act of discovery to what extent is it when you're when you are building a new story, whether it's a short story or a novel or whatever else, that you are discovering it as you go? And to what extent is it that you have been able to plan a scaffold, if you will, mm -hmm. a structure uh, in, in, into which you're going to put a story? Good question. Um, I think about this a lot these days, especially you know this year in like the year of the novella. Um, and I guess that's something I've just kind of learned to calibrate over the years. Like for this one, when I start with an image, maybe I don't know what I want to do with the image, but when the image turns into a premise, then I kind of weigh it in my hands and I'm like, um, you know, kind of shake it a little bit. Like what's, what's your bearing weight? What can you hold up? Like this, um, you know, when I have a novella idea, I'm already aware that I want to do more say, world building or include more events than I do for a short story. Uh, like with this one where I wanted Varys to not realize that she's encountering three problems or adversaries before kind of the false climax of the book and then three after because threes are very important to her culture. Um, so I knew that that was going to be longer than a short story. But at the same time, the premise doesn't hold up to novel length. It's not it's not strong enough for a novel. I would have had to include some more subplots and some more characters and probably some more world building mm. that I actually actively did not want to put into the novella. What I wanted for the novella was to, for people to bring a backpack full of knowledge that they could add to the book. Whereas if I feel like I can't do that, then it's a novel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear you say that because I, I am frankly not a fan of what I view as unnecessary world building. Um, and, and, and there's a fair amount of it, but it, that much world building is taking away from the imagination that the reader brings to the story, I think. Um, and we, for example, we, d we don't know a lot about the world outside of, of this village or what the tyrant is doing. But anything you could have written would have diminished my nervousness about wondering what it was. Yeah, um, and I think that that kind of was also the goal is um, the world building. I, I like to include where the characters interact with the world uh, and kind of pare it back a little bit where it doesn't, because you're right, it's um, not exactly a distraction, but it can detract from mm -hmm. the through line of the story. Yes. If you've got some big chunk of world building kind of hanging off it and doing nothing, um, that's that's weight that the rest of the story can't sustain. If it's a little bit, and if it affects the plot or the decisions, or if it constrains the characters in some way or informs their personality or their background, um, that can go there, right? But if it's 
if I wanted to talk about the tyrant's past military campaigns or something, um, I would have had to, you know, very much streamline it for this and then attach it to the plot in some way. So it's stuck, you know? But then uh, Butcher really is very much, it's the story of a person, Varus, who goes through a set of experiences, meets a certain people, group of people, and they are impacted by the setting they're in, but it's not about the setting they're in. Mm-hmm. Whereas for some mm-hmm. of these stories, I mean, if, if you take to the obvious one in my mind, Lord of the Rings, it's about mm-hmm. the setting that it's in. That mm-hmm. setting is, is its point. And that's not, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be the kind of story that you've been, certainly in this case, but you've been particularly drawn to tell. You know, it's a whole other kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I am curious, has your feeling about writing novellas changed over time? Because at least when, in terms of getting them published, you know, the, the first one's, what, about six years ago with the Apple Tree Thorn, but it's really just a couple of years ago that, that, that you began to, well, write more and, and get a lot more attention with them. Yeah, and uh, I guess that strikes me as a little odd because I like working at the novella length. I find, unfortunately, I'm so sorry to my poor agent. Um, I, <laughs> I find that I have a lot of novella length ideas, you know, the ones that I kind of picked up and I'm like, you're kind of, you feel like you're in the middle and I would I would have to bulk you out unnecessarily to be a novel and I don't want to do that. Um, the Apple Tree Throne, I actually asked my agent if I could self-publish that um, instead of ever taking it out on sub because I wanted to just kind of see what the self-pub process looked like and how hard it was to get a book up on Amazon kind of. And he was like, okay, I don't know what you're, what you're doing. But um, yeah, the, the rise of the novella in speculative fiction has only been a good thing for me. Uh, you may have noticed that my only awards so far have been for novellas. <laughs> uh, the things that I've been a finalist for have included novels, but the only things I've won a thing for have been novellas. But I understand people's, um, I guess, skepticism about them because, uh, to be frank, 90% of the people that I talk to in, quote, the real world, unquote, do not know what a novella is. And I get back a lot of um, one-star reviews from things being like, this novel was too short. I'm like, I cannot help you. It was written to be a novella. Like like for the annual Migration of Clouds, for instance, my editor, yes. Jen Albert at ECW Press and I, uh, we talked about this. She was like, I am absolutely determined to keep it novella length so that it's eligible for novella awards and isn't competing mm-hmm. with novels. And um, the fact that they are selling... Um, I guess, isn't really related to how people are receiving them. Um, well, I think which, one of the things... Which is weird. <laughs> it's not entirely weird. I mean, novellas have, historically, they've always been novellas published separately as individual products. And many of those in mainstream mm. literature were sold as books. I mean, of mice mm. and men, uh, the old man and the sea, and so forth and so on. Um, and in, I think in science fiction and fantasy, partly because of the magazines, a novella was a big, long story. But in the last mm-hmm. several years, the last couple of decades, and largely due to Tor.com, a novella is now an individual product. It looks, it's mm-hmm. a book. And it, a book, to many readers, is a novel. If it's a mm-hmm. book and I'm holding it in my hand and it's not inside another book, it's, it's, it's a novel. And to mm-hmm. some extent, it's only people within genres that define awards by, by story length that necessarily worry about that. Um, mm-hmm. But but I do think that somebody picking up uh, the, the butcher in the forest in a, in a bookstore is going to say, they're going to say, is this a book I want to read or not? They're not mm-hmm. going to say, is this a novella or a novel? Um, the, the e-readers do though, because they can't e-readers tell how long do. it is That's when true. they buy it. That's so yeah, true. I will I will go and throw Rotten Tomatoes at those people. But uh, if they can't tell how long something is after a couple of minutes of reading it on their Kindle, I can't help them either. So. <laughs> Well, there's, a, there's well, another I mean, factor there. Jonathan, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, I was going to say, I mean, the real revolution, if you will, in longer short stories, like you know, novellas, is being they're now presented, because they're presented as books, they're actually marketed distinctly. You know, they're a separate thing. There's the annual migration of clouds with its own look and feel, which is, you know, sort of being echoed again this year. Uh, there's a book like The Butcher of the Forest that sits there and it's a very clear, dark fairy tale kind of look to it. And that allows it to stand separate in a reader's mind. I mean, if Migration or if uh, Butcher of the Forest had appeared as an original story in a collection, it would get nothing like the same kind of attention, even though it was exactly the same work. Mm-hmm. 
See, and the I mean, reason that I, that's interesting too is um, I have, oh God, I have to talk about my other books. Um, from Psychopomp Press, I have a novella coming out uh, this year, One Message Remains. But um, what we've opted to do is actually bundle that with three other stories. So it's not just a novella, it's a mini collection. So it's going to be a little bit more substantial than a novella. So it's going to look like a book, but actually it is a collection of four stories. Um, one of which is is a novella. So I don't even know how we're going to market that one. Luckily, that's not my concern. That is my editor's problem. Well, actually, let, let, let's talk about this, shall we? Because, you know, <laughs> obviously one doesn't want to seem, you know, prolific or to be the H word or anything. But you, you don't just have The Butcher of the Forest out in the world, do you? You've got some other books coming out oh, yeah. in 2024 for readers to, to look forward to. I mean, I think the next thing is, you have a new novel. I do. I have on this, the on this Siege audio of, podcast. We will on this audio up. podcast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have. I have the Siege of Burning Grass, which is a secondary world espionage anti-war novel coming out from Solaris in March, uh, the twelfth in North America, and I think the fourteenth in the UK. And then after that, uh, as far as I know, it's The Rider, The Ride, The Rich Man's Wife, which is coming out from Absinthe Books uh, with Mary O'Regan as the editor there. And then the sequel to The Annual Migration of Clouds is coming out in June from ECW Press. That one's called We Speak Through the Mountain. And then last, as far as I know, unless some editor is like lurking behind me, waiting to throw something else at me that I forgot is coming out, um, One Message Remains with Psychopomp Press. <laughs> Is there any concern on your behalf or maybe even on your agent's behalf that it's kind of like, it's a lot all at once. It's like some attention over here and you're not going to get some clear attention on whatever it is, maybe the main, the main show in all of this for you. Yes. So we did not actually even realize this was happening until roughly like last fall when it was far too late to ask anybody to move printing dates or, or release dates or anything like that. And it wasn't until like recently that I realized like, you know, obviously writing anything for the award is not the point, um, particularly this year for various reasons. Um, (laughs) But I now have four novellas competing against each other for whatever may be coming down the line and one single novel. Poor little novel. But yeah, um, we didn't realize that this was going to happen. It's five different presses, five different editors, and I did not get everybody into a group chat to be like, can we move a couple of these to 2025 Uh (laughs) before I actually die trying to promote five (laughs) books in one year and and write other stuff? (laughs) So which is the good one? Which is your favorite? Oh, obviously, Butcher. Obviously. That is the correct answer. Congratulations. Yeah. But, but um, also, like we keep saying, get a load of this beautiful cover, which does like half the work for the book. It is it a really beautiful does, Well, I mean, actually, I, I should say, to get back to your e-reader thing, I, I do not have a physical copy. I've got the picture of it, but I, I read it on the Kindle. And one of the other interesting things that changes your attitude is reading a book electronically where you don't know I mean, you can see I'm 7% of the way through, or I'm in position yeah. of 1248. It's not the same thing. We were talking it's to Kelly about this recently. You're reading through a book, and you're 12, 20% through, and you're thinking, this is great. It's going fine. At no point do you open the book and realize, oh, my God, I've only got 28 pages left. Or in, yeah. in the case of Kelly's novel, oh, my God, I have 400 pages left. <clears throat> you, you don't have that sense of, the book being either too short or too long. It's only yeah. as long as one of the things that the New Yorker magazine did for the first 30 years of its existence was there was no table of contents. There was no author listed at the beginning of each piece. If you were reading a J.D. Salon, you just started reading a story. And it and you didn't know how long it was going to be. You didn't know who had written it. You didn't know anything <laughs> about it. And that's a great way to read a story because you, yes. you, can, fin- you can finish it up thinking, did I read a novella or was that just a clever short story? And you, you, you don't decide that till after you finished it. And I think that kind of reading is, can be almost replicated by, by the e-readers, by, by, by the Kindles and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can read The Butcher of the Forest and come out of the uh, back end of it thinking, I've, I've read a novel, not a long novel, but I've read a novel. There's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in this. Uh, and a lot of it opens up in a lot of ways that aren't explained, which which novels do. 
Um, yeah, I, I love not explaining things and then getting angry emails later. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's my favorite. It's, it's very satisfying. Um, are you getting, are you like, getting well, emails from people who Tell me to... about this. Right. Absolutely not. Send. <laughs> love, 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 Premi. Send. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but also, like, what you, what you mentioned there with not knowing who's writing it or, or how long it is. Um, yeah. I, I recently sent back a written interview, actually, from, from one of the tour publicists who had forwarded it from someone else. And the interviewer for their site had asked, oh, can you also do like a 90 second video for us? And I was like, well, I'll try. But again, I may die because <laughs> I, I just I'm so overscheduled. I'm, I've, you know, I'm working like 100 hour weeks at this point, even asking me to do a 90 second video and then edit it and then send it to you might be kind of out of the question. And like, since when does it matter how I, the author, look? Why do I need to be connected to the work? I don't know what most of my favorite authors looked like when I was growing up. I, I still don't know what C.J. Cherry looks like. And I've read, like, how many of her books? Um, I probably couldn't pick Diane Duane out of a lineup. And I actually met her in Dublin. So, <laughs> And I was so starstruck. Uh, I just, I, I don't even remember if I could talk or not. I just, I remember holding yeah. out my hand like, Oh my God! Do you know who you are? Yeah, it was it was it was it was a rough moment. It was a rough moment. <laughs> How do you balance the time, though? Are you somebody who writes on on a single work or a single piece all at the same time till it's done, or are you somebody who's doing a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and a little bit of this, and a little bit of this, and a little bit of that? More of the second thing. Um, and, you know, again, in the, in the interests of, of transparency, uh, I'm also autistic and I have very, very severe inattentive type ADHD. In fact, after I went in for the testing, uh, the, the team pulled me aside. It was four people and they were like, we just got back the computer results and you have an attention span like multiple magnitudes order, you know, shorter than we've ever seen before. Like your attention span is somewhere within two to eight seconds. That's, that's how long you can concentrate on anything. So I can concentrate for two to eight seconds and then I have to pull it back. They were like, can we do a paper on you? I was like, oh my God, I'm a test subject. I'm a test subject. Um, <laughs> and, and the brain scan results, we don't even talk about. So very much the second thing, and I can't be medicated for it, unfortunately, because it conflicts with my heart condition. So um, I usually am working on, you can't see it here, but there's a piece of paper taped to the wall that has lists of everything that I am supposed to be working on and their due dates and the next steps, because otherwise I will get confused. So this is split up into novels and novellas, mm -hmm. short fiction, classes, teaching, talking, panels, Patreon, blurbs, and other. And there's 27 things on it. So if I tried to work on one thing until it was done, nothing would get done. So I'm usually working on between, yeah, like five to 12 things at the same time as I find time. Uh, and that's, that's just your and writing. I, and I'm also tired a lot. Yes. <laughs> that's just your writing. That doesn't cover teaching in the library or, or organizing library programs. No, this is all writing outside of that. So, so, so yeah. in other words, it's way more chaotic than, even, chaotic than even you have just described. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually, it was funny. Earlier this week, I was writing an email to my, my library, I guess supervisor, we, I mostly say contact, uh, to let her know that I had been asked to attend a uh, literary festival here in Canada. So I would be away for like four days at this time. While I was writing the email, another invite came in for another festival, asking me to come talk at that one for four days at a different location in a different month. So I was like, Oh, okay, well, I'll just add that to the email then. <laughs> and then I'm going to go lie down for five minutes. And then I'm going to get up. <laughs> and I'm going to start preparing the keynote and the, the panel that I'm supposed to be at and, and the, the workshop that I'm supposed to teach, which is three hours. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to be wanted. But again, this makes me like one of my characters, seduced by usefulness. Thinking that my entire worth is in being asked to do things. This is a terrible personal quality to be in publishing. Being a people pleaser, <laughs> it's a bad deal. <laughs> it's certainly a dangerous thing to admit publicly, frankly. Yeah, but my, my hope is no one will take advantage of this after listening to the podcast. People, please be kind. A life balance issue here because you're asked to do all these things because of the time you have found to do the writing. So in other words, 
it's, 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 it's a kind of neat, almost economic balance that if you do enough writing, you will continue to be invited to all these things. And eventually you'll be invited to so many things that you can't do any writing anymore. <laughs> and then you'll be Ray Bradbury. Yeah, and then there'll be like a market a market correction. Exactly. Right, have to, exactly. Yeah, the uh, the entire system will collapse. I mean, I appreciate that I'm only saying yes to things this year to something that shocked me the first time it happened, uh, which mm-hmm. is that these people are offering to actually pay for flights and accommodation and actually pay for my panels and stuff. Because the first time that happened, I was invited to Halcon in uh, 2022. I got the invite and they were like, you know, we'd like you... We we're inviting a couple of authors. We would like you to be one of them. And I wrote back, oh, you know, I would love to. Thank you for the invite. I'm so sorry. I can't afford it. And they were like, we will pay for you. And I was shocked because they seemed to take it for granted. And I was like, but this is the first time that's ever happened. Yeah, as far course. as I know, that did not happen to nobodies like me. So uh, that was super, super exciting. And then, of course, they put my signing table next to TJ Klune. So I had exactly nobody. And I sat there fiddling with my phone while TJ's line went down the hall and to the wall and then out the wall and through the lobby and out to the street outside. (laughs) So that was great. Uh, It's it's, it's one of the things. (laughs) Let me ask you this. You're based in Canada, right? Uh, Yeah. How has it the largest English language book market in the world is the US book market? That's where the money is. How has it been for you writing into that market over the last 10 years? Starting off trying to get work to get traction, you know, your novels have been published primarily in the UK and then put into the United States by a publisher that's not there on the ground. How has that changed? What's that experience been like for you? Has it, has it been difficult? I uh, I guess the answer is I, I don't know anything different, really, because this is the way I, I started. So I've always been based in Edmonton, and I've always had my American agent, and I've always had publishers located wherever. So I don't know what it's like to, for instance, have a um, Canadian publisher in my area. Uh, it's not like the movies where I can go and just like have lunch with my editor um, which I could do in some cases if I was in Toronto because ECW Press is based in Toronto. But um, yeah, this is as far as I can tell how things work. So I, I don't know what it would look like if it looked different, genuinely. And, and also, this seems like an opportune place to mention, you know, um, I've never actually met my agent. We've been working together since 2017, <laughs> but I've never been to New York. And as far as I know, he's never been to Edmonton. So I don't know. Maybe he's AI. Um, Michael, if you're listening to this, are you AI? <laughs> but, there, but there is a Canadian science fiction community. There are Canadian. Yeah. Didn't, didn't you receive an Aurora Award? Uh, yes, it is. Actually, hey. technically, I like to say that I'm a two-time Aurora Award, Award winner because the first one arrived in glass shards because something had gone wrong oh, in the box. Yeah. So when they delivered the replacement one, I was like, can I say that I'm a two-time? He was like, no, no. Nice try, though. <laughs> yes. Noble one-time winner, two-time yeah. recipient. You are yeah, a two-time exactly. Yeah, that was bad. Like, I, I picked up the box, and it was like, jingle, jingle, jingle. And I was like, ooh, that can't be good. Oh, dear. <laughs> but there is a sense. I mean, a, mm-hmm. a good friend of, of, of this podcast, Peter Hallis, is very, mm-hmm. very argumentative that there is a Canadian science fiction. He believes that we should mm-hmm. all be reading Phyllis Gottlieb, who was an excellent writer, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and there's some of the major successful fantasists in the world, like Guy Kay, uh, are Canadians. I think you're right. I think they tend to cluster around Toronto and yeah. Alberta might be. But do you have a sense of community that, uh, that of the sort that Peter's always talking about? Online, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was also, I, I was recently invited to be in the, um, you know, Best Canadian Fantasy and Science Fiction okay. Anthology Volume 1, which was edited by Stephen Kotovich. Um, so that was really nice. But yeah, a lot, you know, even a lot of the other authors I only know online. And I think a lot of the reason for this, of course, is that, you know, when you're publishing short stories, that's kind of one thing. People don't really consider you to be part of the publishing world until you start publishing novels. And my debut novel happened to come out uh, March 14th, 2020, around the same time something else came out. So everything has just been virtual and I'm only slowly getting caught up on real life. Like last year, I went to CanCon for the first time. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd never been before. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's very much a work in progress of trying to be a writing community member 
during a plague. <laughs> yeah. Has has Butcher of the Forest been a different experience? I ask because in some ways, like that's your first big New York publisher title. So has that been, yeah. been different for you? It has. And actually, um, you know, you, you may be delighted to hear this has been part of what I'm now able to talk to people um, during my writer one on ones at the library with is this is my first big five. And mm-hmm. so now I do have an experience to compare this with um, all my other books, which have been kind of small to medium press or in the case of and what can we offer you tonight? I'm just going to go ahead and call that a micro press because the whole press is date. He's everything like, you know, he's, he's the acquiring editor and he's, he does dev edits and, and copy edits and he arranges for the art and he does distribution. He calculates the royalties and the whole press is Dave. <laughs> That's a very small press. <laughs> I, I feel like I should say we're not in any sense, and I'm sure you're not, but we're not in any sense uh, dispar- disparaging Solaris, who are a, a major uh, independent mm-hmm. publisher in the United Kingdom and who do publish in the United States, just that it's a, mm-hmm. a different thing. It is different. Uh, it is different. Uh, the the processes are different. The timelines are different. Um, the the obviously, I as the author can't see the marketing side of things and and how booksellers are, are being approached, anything like that, or what they're doing behind the scenes. Um, everything that was behind the scenes for a small press is still behind the scenes for a large press. But what I can see from the Big Five experience is the different with difference with publicity and the kind of sense of reach. And, um, and, and instead of having like five people I know comment on an Instagram post about my upcoming book, um, you know, with, with tour.com, there's a whole bunch of people I don't know. And I'm sitting there like, who are you? Are you going to read the book? Why are strangers reading my book? You know, because part of you as an author is still kind of flabbergasted that people other than your mom are reading your book, but then you get the royalty statements and you're like, well, it can't just be her. Or else the house would be full of books. But you know what I mean. Um, mm. The the reach is different. It it feels qualitatively different. I feel more mm. perceived. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> you're becoming famous. I think is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Sorry. You're becoming famous. Uh, yes, you are. You're, you're 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 more famous than you were a year ago. You're. In, in about two weeks, you're going to be more famous than you are today because this book is going to be out. Um, and oh, it's not I hope somebody thing. sends me some booze. No, that's a bad thing. That's that's terrifying. That's terrifying. I, no, 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 I no. really, I just, I want to be one of those like J.D. Salinger type recluses who just occasionally pushes a book underneath the door and then my agent gets it and then he does something with it. And then I just sit here quietly with the cat, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> writing another book. Unless you... Unless you <laughs> Unless you do the sort of Stephen King American Express ad, you'll be fine. You know, okay. many, many sort of big five authors happily, unfortunately, lapse, you should exist in, a, in happy anonymity. So, I mean, I think, you know, sort of, I think the book's going to get a lot of attention because I think it's terrific and it looks great. Thank you. And I guess that's what you want. You want the book to talk for you rather than I want the book to talk for me. I don't want to be on TikTok. Well, I, is- I don't want to be like the, the dancing monkey in the circus. I just want to be like, Hey folks, read my book, but do not analyze my facial features because well, no, I'm that, I, I can out. understand that too. And, <laughs> and, and, but but you were talking about not, you know not not recognizing uh, Diane Duane or not recognizing uh, C.J. Cherry, and, and and in fact, very few writers get recognized. On okay, screen. good. I mean, how- actually, my understanding is um, I'm constantly confused for Susan Palumbo, uh, who is based in Toronto, okay. uh, who is a um, much younger than me, uh, Trinidadian Caribbean author who coincidentally looks a little bit like me, but I don't think that we look alike at all. But apparently every time she's out at something, people are like, oh, I know you. I loved your book, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, you, no, no, no. But yeah. You, you can live with that, I guess. But I, think, I, think, I think my big thing is I don't mind the hustle for now, but it is pretty soon, I think, going to start cutting into the writing time. So then problem. I'm going to have to have some decisions to make about whether or not I can continue to try to promote my stuff rather than write the stuff. Well, do you still want to write? I mean, looking forward, I mean, do you want to keep writing the number of things you're writing, or do you want to yes. 
focus down on a few things or, or do you think it'll always be assuming it's, you know, you have a happy choice that it will be a lot of things all at once I don't know. Um, and again, I, of course, am not in charge of publishing schedules. So if if I could not choose to have kind of a year like 2021 when I had four things out or like this year when I've got five things out, um, I think a book a year is not a bonkers thing to say. I don't know. Is that an insane thing to say? But okay, I do fine. want to write. I mean, obviously, you haven't seen my ideas folder. Mm-hmm. I have outlines for something like 45 novels at this point. I have thousands of short stories I want to write. I have dozens of novellas. Um, If it were up to me, and if I were making a living wage, um, not doing library stuff with people who, and I'm not even joking here, are actually wearing tinfoil hats occasionally. Um, Sorry, tinfoil (laughs) and wool. It was um, it was tinfoil and wool because the wool catches the backscatter of the radiation. Oh, yeah, good to know. That was a really good talk. And um, you know, if I were a full time writer, uh, that would be the goal. But frankly, at this point, after this year is over, after the library, I will not be making enough money off my books to pay the bills. And I've already done the math on that. Uh, and my agent, who is much better at math than me, has done the math. So I'm going to have to go back to working full time and then we'll see what my so-called prolific output looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Until these books start doing, doing their, their part and bringing in more darn money. I guess. Yeah, that's that's kind of the funny thing is sometimes I'll have friends be like, oh, you know, I wish I wish I had your career. I wish I was, you know, a big name like you. I'm like, first of all, stop saying that or I will literally suplex you. And I'm five foot one. <laughs> so that's just humiliating for everybody involved. Um, small people win fights through the element of surprise. But like, two, I can read my royalty statements. I am not famous. I, you know, like I get my statements and I'm like, this is nice. Now I can afford, you know, the sandwich and chips instead of just the sandwich. <laughs> well, so nobody here is getting rich off my books. Oh, but, 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 but when you start looking at a royalty statement, you're not getting, by and large, you're not getting royalties for individual stories. The stories out no, 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 there. No, no, no. So, so, so as a result, you, more people are reading you than are showed up, than are reflected in those royalty checks. I get that's true. As, as somebody who's written only nonfiction. I get royalty. I still I get these letters from publishers saying, "We will pay you a royalty check next year when the amount gets up to twenty five dollars." But so so that kind of thing happens in academia uh, yeah. a lot. But nevertheless, <laughs> I was thinking, what I get. That is well, I've gotten smaller Gary. checks than that. I've gotten checks for like eleven dollars. Yeah. Oh, I've gotten. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Uh, but. I win. But, but, but I get my point for nine dollars fifty six that I have to share with thirty people. Okay, let, 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 me, let me give an example. Let's say your story. Yeah, yeah. Your story in in the book of witches was the mirror witch story. Am I right? The yeah. Okay. Yeah. So speak the mirror witch. Terrific story. <laughs> it's it's got <laughs> it, 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 it's a it's a neat kind of comeuppance story, I guess, uh, about witch finding. Now that as Jonathan can probably tell us, that book is doing really well, as far as I know. Selling a lot it's of copies, well. got a lot of attention. That's a lot of people reading your story. And a lot of those people are reading you for the first time. And those people know your name now. And they'll be looking for the next thing. I uh, hope they go out and buy my book so I can make a dollar twenty in royalties, she said, hopefully. Uh, you know what's funny, well, well, though? I never think of myself as like a short fiction author. Like... I find short fiction extremely difficult. I I write it because Hmm. nice people occasionally solicit me to write it, but um, I find it very, very challenging. My natural writing length is like novel. Um, The shorter the story that I'm asked to turn in, the more I freak out. Genuinely. I don't consider myself a good short story writer. (laughs) And you've still written 30 or 40 of them. I like that story a lot. Um. Yeah, I had had someone to impress, so... (laughs) 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 <laughs> well, I, I guess as, as we sort of get to the end of our, our traditional hour, I should say, sort of obviously, you must have had a very, very busy 2023 to have such a full 2024. I assume you're relaxing and nothing much is happening now and 2025 will just be kicking back. I am not 100% sure those assumptions are correct. Um, <laughs> I am on deadline for many things. And also I have been asked to show up in person at many things at which I will be teaching and, and, and talking. And of course I had to Google how to write a keynote because like, I don't know, we somehow didn't cover this in my science degrees. It's um, <laughs> no, it's going to be a busy year with a lot of travel, uh, a lot of teaching, a lot of talking, a lot of library stuff. Um, you know, some books to write, 
some books to edit, um, lots of promo. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for what this year brings, especially because it stops me from thinking about what's going to happen in 2025 when I will probably have to move back into my parents' basement. <laughs> I, I hope not. I firmly hope not. <laughs> Even my basement is nicer than their basement. So let's let's hope for the best. But for now, we should probably say that um, you can get The Butcher of the Forest from all bookstores in about two weeks, that The Siege of Burning Grass is following that a couple of weeks later or so. So you can yeah. certainly pre-order, and we'll provide pre-order links in the show notes for this. But for now, Premier Mohammed, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so, so much for the invite. And until next time, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>